I'm Dr. Josefina Bañales, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago in the Community and Prevention Research Area in Psychology. Because I'm constantly reflecting on my purpose. And for me, when I'm writing my manuscripts or when I'm talking with youth and doing youth participatory action research, I don't just see these things as research projects. For me, these are all pieces of why I'm here in my career on this earth, to be honest, for me, it's very spiritual as existential reason. for listening to this episode of the Researching Diversity Podcast. I am Charlene Pevich and I am a PhD student in the Inclusive Education Department at the University of Potsdam. And I'm Miriam Schwarzenthal and I'm a junior professor at the University of Wuppertal. We will be your hosts for this episode. So what can you expect in this episode? We talked with Josefina Banales about critical consciousness among young people. And related to this topic, we also talked about how people can learn with from and from within marginalized communities. And in the field of science, we discuss participatory approaches in research and how we can build them. And Miriam, what about you? What did you like most about this episode? I think I really like that Josefina, she really adds a very non-mainstream way of doing research, which really includes listening very carefully to what the community you're investigating says and wants, and not just the researcher. And she really defends collaborative process of producing knowledge that includes action, reflection, and care from both participants and researchers. And I also really appreciate the way that Josefina talks about the nuances and the complexities of developing critical consciousness. As always, you can find the references to the studies that we mentioned on our website. All right, let's start with the episode. Welcome, Dr. Banyales, and thanks so much for being here with us today. We're so excited to have you on board for our podcast, also because I personally am really a big fan of your research and I've read quite a lot of your papers, to be honest. <laughs> so I really think that this research and this perspective is something that we should also research more in the German and European context. So I'm really hoping that maybe This can also be a starting point for that. And what I also love about your research is that you really emphasize participatory approaches and also listening to the voices of adolescents and not just treating them as research participants. So I'm also curious to talk a bit more with you about that. So in every episode, we usually start talking about the past. So the first question I have is, why did you become interested in the topic of critical consciousness among adolescents? Yeah, thank you uh, for the introduction. And I'm really excited to be here with you both to chat about my work and intersections in our work and, and how this work can apply in different cultural contexts. So thank you for having me. So how did I become interested in the topic? I've always considered myself interested in understanding people, humans, you know, like back in the day when I was a young baby kid, you know, like in Chicago, like I just remember myself just always questioning like, well, why did they do that? Why did that person say that? Why did they behave in that way? So I've just always been interested in understanding people, but I never knew what a psychologist was. I never knew what that profession was or that people who were psychologists were interested in those types of questions. And so it really wasn't until the end of high school and really in undergrad that I learned like, oh, psychology is a thing. You can understand why people do the things that you do. And I took a class um, my first year, no, second year of college with my soon to be what would have become Dr. Kira Hudson Banks, my mentor. And the class was called The Psychology of Racism. And the class could just completely change my life. You know, in the class, we were talking about what is structural racism? How do young people learn about structural racism from their parents, from their schools, learning about healthy racial identity development? And really in the class, I could just feel in my body, you know, like my heart would pound. And I was just so excited to learn about issues that I felt like I always knew growing up, but I didn't speak about it in the way that, you know, a psychologist would using a technical, fancy terms, right? I just knew in my body that the things I was learning, I already knew, but in a different way. And so in that class, you know, learning about how young people 
learn about race and how those early formative years of adolescence really shape how we engage as adults, as young adults in the future around racial issues, that that period of adolescence being a really sensitive time, just really, again, validated my experiences as a young woman of color growing up in Chicago. And it just, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know what are the early uh, contextual factors that shape how young people understand racism in their lives and ultimately what promotes them to actually do something about racism in their lives. So it was really because of my mentor, Dr. Kira Hudson-Banks, and that class, Taking Psychology of Racism, that ended up shaping my uh, research from there on as a second-year undergrad student to now as a professor teaching this class now. Wow, yeah, that's a very impressive story, actually, I think. <laughs> And what eventually motivated you to really go into research? I mean, that was really the beginning, I think, of, and did you already gain research experience then as a second year student? Or how did that come to be that you actually ended up being a researcher? I, so I'm a first generation high school and college student. So being the first in my family to graduate high school, first in my family to go to college. And I went to, this was literally like the second day of college. And a professor had said, you know, if you want to go to grad school, you got to do research. And I was like, I don't know what grad school is. It sounds like more school and I like it. So I want to do grad school because that means more school, just really loving school and just learning. And so I took from there, I had actually reached out to Dr. Kira Hudson Banks, not even at the time, really, truly knowing what she was studying. I just reached out to her to be a research assistant in her lab because I heard from somebody that you got to do research to go to grad school. And I reached out to her and I was like, I'm a freshman. Can I work in your research lab? I don't know anything about research, but I can learn. And she was like, of course, come on. And at the same time, she encouraged me to take her psychology of racism class. So it was really this, I feel lucky in the way that, that it worked out that way. But it was also me, again, listening to that intuition of I'm really excited about learning. I don't really know what research is about, but I'm just going to put myself out there. And I just got, I feel really lucky to have found Kira in this class that really just resonated with my uh, lived experiences as a, a Latina, as a Mexican uh, woman. I can very much relate since I'm also a first generation student of color in Germany. And I wanted to ask you, what were your challenges along the way? And also maybe what helped you along the way? Because it took you quite far considering that now you work as an assistant professor. <laughs> I think, you know, with being a first generation college student, and, you know, in many ways, I still feel like this now as an assistant professor, it's just figuring things out, what oftentimes sometimes feel like by yourself. And not all the time, like I've been able to cultivate like a community of other first generation college students and now assistant professors, doctoral students when I was a PhD student to really co-navigate this process of being the first in many ways in these academic spaces that weren't made for the success of Black women, Latina women, for low-income families, low-income people, immigrants. And I think it's just been the challenge, really, and I would still say still challenge is not knowing what's the blueprint, right? How do you navigate reading a research article, you know, back in the day when I was an undergrad, not really knowing what that was about, And that, that really not going away, you know, I'm still wrestling with that. So I would say that's a challenge. But like I mentioned, over time, I've been able to cultivate a community of other women of color, first generation students, and now faculty who are on this journey with me to know that you don't have to be alone in this journey and in this process. There's so much collective wisdom and knowledge within our community. And so I'm really big on being in community and asking questions and Again, still continuously putting myself out there, even when I don't want to or when I'm scared to ask a question that I may not know about. Again, still as an assistant professor, not knowing everything, right? How to navigate this new job and this new career. Yeah, thanks for your answer. I would be interested in your opinion on doing research on topics which are particularly important for minority group members, like may it be their ethnic racial background or socioeconomic status as being minoritized in a society. So these topics are important because they themselves like suffer, like when it comes to injustice, racism, or where they can profit from, so anti-racism or like community work. So what role does doing research about these topics play? Yeah. Oh, what a rich question. So important. And I think there's so many different ways that we can take this question. 
I think about it through going back to the previous question of like the challenging part of doing this work as well as the amount of satisfaction and just motivation that I have to do the work because my research on how young people reflect on challenge and critique systems of oppression, mainly racism, and in my work, mainly focusing on black and brown youth, these issues are not just abstract for me, right? These issues are very personal. When I write my papers and when I'm talking with young people about their experiences in schools or in the communities, I'm thinking about my niece. I'm thinking about young me, little baby me. I'm thinking about my family and that these are just not abstract concepts, that it is important to understand how we promote the thriving of kids of color because it's a immediate issue that we have to understand. This is pressing knowledge that we need. And so at the same time, I think a challenge of the work is that people often think that these topics actually only apply to people of color and minoritized communities. You know, white people in other privileged communities like white men, cis heterosexual white men, understanding how they develop anti-racist identities or how they come to understand their privilege as white people or white men, for example, is important. So identity development processes or critical racial processes aren't just things that people of color need to wrestle with. These are things that privileged communities also need to wrestle with. And so I think it's also been a challenge in having to repeatedly make that argument in my work, whereas I think, you know, emotionally where I'm at in terms of my journey is like, I know that, but it's constantly having to make that argument that racial identity is not just the process for people of color. White people also have a race and an identity that they need to explore because that matters for dismantling white supremacy. Yeah, things. I think that already is so much content in your answer where we could like talk for hours. <laughs> but I want to, I want to ask something about Dr. Banks, you have mentioned several times, I think. So you shared that she had an important role in being your mentor. And from your perspective as an early scholar back then, but also now as your experiences as an assistant professor, is there something what mentors should or shouldn't do to be supportive? You know, I think two things. One thing that Dr. Banks was so good at was speaking things into an existence for me that I didn't quite have the language to speak into existence for myself. So for example, Kira and I, when we would walk through the psychology building on campus, would introduce me to her colleagues, other professors at my university as, you know, this is my colleague. I was called her colleague as an undergraduate student. And she would say, this is my colleague, Josie. She's going to get a PhD. And I would be over there like, what? But she saw something in me that at that time I didn't quite believe. You know, or maybe not, maybe that I didn't quite believe, but I didn't have that vision for myself yet because I didn't see it. Um, it took some time to get to that place. But I think something that I would tell mentors is being able to really hype up your students, hype up their strengths, their assets, remind them, tell them about themselves, tell them how they contribute to your research, how they contribute to your studies, not just how you as a person with a PhD or advanced education, how could you could help them? How can they push you in your work and treating them as a colleague in that just makes a world of a difference. You know, you can see gains in self-esteem, increases in their interest in the work. So I would say that's a do of mentoring a don't. I would say, you know, and I think about this too, like in the realm of my research, I really try to create collaborative environments with my students and with my mentees. So rather than being hierarchical, And saying, you know, do this because I said so. That's not going to work. Really taking time to develop these relationships with your students, getting to know them holistically. Why do they want to gain more research experience? Why do they want to learn about this topic? What's motivating them? Get to know your students beyond the, you know, very superficial, like, hi, I'm good. I need a research credit. Really get in there and try to get to know them and see what excites them. And so in getting to know them, you can start developing these more collaborative relationships in that, again, you can see how they contribute to your work. And of course, how you can also contribute to their work as well. More bi-directionality rather than like hierarchical. 
I love that advice, actually. I just thought there should be trainings for mentors or something, you know, where everybody also learns about these things because usually, you know, people are just thrown into that. And I think these things are often not considered. So I think these are great points, actually. And I also thought this is also a bit reflected in your research, actually, this approach of really listening to people's voices and not just like imposing a hierarchical relationship, you know, and thinking you always know better than them. So I was also wondering, with your research approaches that might not always be completely mainstream, maybe like youth participatory action research, how was that for you? Like, was it always easy to implement that or what challenges did you encounter along the way? Yeah, so youth participatory action research or YPAR is an epistemological approach. And so when I say epistemological, meaning like a way of knowing, a way of doing, a way of being is a, as you said, um, Miriam, is a less mainstream way to research because it's slow. It's not a clear roadmap in how you are going to solve a question. It's really grounded in what the community thinks the issue is. What do they want to explore? What tools do they want to use to explore the issue? And what do they want to do with that information to address that issue that they're exploring? So YPAR, Youth Participatory Action Research. So that process being with young people you know, it's exciting and confusing and hard and rewarding. So right now I'm doing a youth participatory action research project with Latinx youth in Pittsburgh all around what does it mean to be a Latino, Latina youth in Pittsburgh? And Pittsburgh is a community that's called an emerging Latinx community, meaning that it's a community with a small percentage of Latinx people. So they're more recent immigrants into the community. And that community doesn't have infrastructure to really support Latinx youth and families there. So for example, there aren't, um, these particular Latinx families are bilingual. So they speak Spanish, English, but then some of them only speak Spanish. So they don't have the infrastructure of having services in Spanish for these families. And so with working with youth in Pittsburgh, really around what does it mean to be Latinx? It's really asking that question with my co-researchers who are youth. And we're really at the beginning of that project, it's really, that's where we are, just talking about what that identity means to them. And over time, what we're going to do is learn more about what is mainstream research, what are some tools that they can use in their work, like surveys, interviews, but also leaving room for creativity of what they want to do. Maybe they want to film a podcast or they want to interview some local political officials, or maybe they want to interview each other or their family members. There are a ton of other methods they can use, like testimonials, which is reflecting on their own personal life experiences through diaries, things like that. And so those methods aren't what I learned how to do in my PhD program at the University of Michigan. It was really my collaborations with other women of color faculty, like Dr. Adriana Aldana, who really, she's in social work, who really helped facilitate me learning about these methods and connecting me with youth communities in Michigan, because I wasn't learning them in my pretty traditional developmental psych program. And so that work is exciting because I know that it's going to increase the likelihood that we capture nuance and complexity in Latinx use experiences that the current literature doesn't have because the current literature has really focused on using quantitative measures to assess identity, which is important knowledge. I do also do quantitative research, but it's not the full picture. When you let young people or when you collaborate with young people to share their own stories and also create the methods that they use to share those stories, you're going to get some different stuff than what the quantitative measures can tell you. It's really exciting, but it's also tough because I've had to learn these skills kind of on the side. It wasn't a part of my core training. And so now as a professor, I feel really excited to be in a community psych program that really values this type of training of graduate students and undergrads. And so I will eventually be teaching these more community-based approaches. So my students hopefully don't feel like they're doing this work on the side. It'll be core to their research training. Thanks so much. I think that's a really, really interesting research approach also and something I'm also very curious about. So <laughs> I think also looking forward to hearing more about the results of that. Just one question, looking back at your journey. So you already told us about the journey that brought you into research. Is there any advice you would give to other and more junior researchers, maybe from what you learned along the way? 
So I would really focus on what drove you to want to get a PhD in the first place and consistently developing a practice of grounding yourself in that. So I know that there's lots of reasons why we pursue higher education. Maybe for some of us, it's because we really love learning. Or for some of us, you know, we really want to share that education back with our communities. You know, we want to provide opportunities for our families or community members you know, to come along with us as we're getting higher education. And so regardless of what your motivation is or the reason why you want to be in research or why you want to do research, I think it's important to constantly reflect on the why in your journey. Write it down, journal. If you saw my office right now, you'd be like, oh my gosh, she has 20 notebooks because I'm constantly reflecting on my purpose. And for me, you know, when I'm writing my manuscripts or when I'm talking with youth and doing youth participatory action research, I don't just see these things as research projects. For me, these are all pieces of why I'm here in my career on this earth, to be honest, for me, is very spiritual as existential reason, because I ultimately, my mission is to do work that contributes to the healing and liberation of youth of color and their families. And so that's my why. And so I'm constantly thinking about that when I'm writing, when I'm in the community, when I'm teaching. And that just fuels me. That gives me energy because it's tough, right? It's hard being an undergrad. It's hard being in grad school. We have all these requirements and there's other barriers that are compounded on that, you know, when you're a first generation college student or you're a single parent or you're a parent or you're low income, for example. And so it gets hard out here. That's one thing, reflecting on the why. The other thing would be cultivating that community of support because none of us on this earth, I don't care what profession you are in, has done this work by yourself. Nobody has gotten to where they are alone. They have gotten there because they've had people supporting them in different ways. And so I would encourage people to really put themselves out there. And I know it can be hard and challenging and scary, but really trying to cultivate a community of care with other people to help you through because we need community. We've got one question left for the past section, which maybe helps us to getting to know you better in other ways. And the question is, what are three silly, fun or random facts about you? That's why we were laughing. <laughs> yeah, so I sing. So I used to sing competitively growing up. So I um, was on some talent shows when I was younger. So I was on the show Star Search and it's Showtime at the Apollo. So these are just music talent shows. I didn't win them, but that's something fun. I really love to sing and I don't compete anymore, but I will always be down to sing karaoke anytime, anywhere. I have a microphone in my office <laughs> that, you know, is used for singing. So I really love to sing and I really like to just engage in joyful movement with my body. So some days that's walking, other days that's yoga, other days that's weightlifting and other days that's just lying on my sofa. brings us to our next section, the present. So which paper did you bring today? So I brought a paper by Dr. Roderick Watts and Constant Flanagan. It's called Pushing the Envelope on Youth Civic Engagement, a Developmental and Liberation Psychology Perspective. And if you had to explain this paper to your grandma or your granddad, how would you do this? <laughs> We love this question, as you can tell. It's such, a, it's such a good question, right? Because, you know, like academics, you get into all the, mm, but focus on the here and now. So civic engagement is the ways in which people, young people specifically, show up to do something that advances the well-being of their community. Why I love this paper so much is that Dr. Watts and Flanagan really push the field that studies how youth engage in that, youth civic engagement, really to think critically beyond civic engagement. So like I said, civic engagement is the ways that young people advance the well-being of their community. That is not, that definition of civic engagement doesn't directly call into the fact that there's oppression in society and that young people could challenge oppression, that young people have the capabilities, the competencies to engage in those behaviors. And so this paper really challenged the field to say young people do engage in civic behaviors like helping their community members. They do things like vote. 
But they also do other stuff too that is more critical forms of engagement that we would say, like they are protesting for changing unjust laws. Young people are forming student groups in their schools to challenge racial injustice, white supremacy, classism. And so this paper really got us thinking more about more critical forms of civic engagement. Sometimes we call them activism. Sometimes we call it critical action. But it's really challenging us, the field, to move beyond just those more traditional forms of civic engagement. Again, like helping a friend um, gain knowledge to mainstream political processes like voting, which is important. Voting is important. Talking about voting is important. But that's not the only thing young people can do to contribute positively to their communities. And yeah, a central construct that's mentioned in this paper and also a lot in your own research is this construct of critical consciousness that you also mentioned before. And could you just briefly explain to someone who's maybe never heard that before what that encompasses? So critical consciousness, we think about it as this multidimensional construct, meaning that it's something that has different components to it. And it's the ways in which young people come to understand the social world as being shaped by structural oppression. So their development of a critical analysis, meaning that this is young people's ability to critique the fact that there are laws that make it harder for black and brown communities and linguistic minorities to vote. It's not because these communities don't want to vote. It's because there are laws in place that make it harder for these communities to show up at the polls, for example. So that's one component of critical consciousness, more of this worldview analysis, critical analysis, we call it. So it's young people developing that critique of systems as opposed to just blaming individuals for their stance in society. So that's one component. Another component of critical consciousness is more of this motivational piece. So this is when young people feel like they can actually do something to make a change in the world. So we call this like critical motivation or political efficacy. So this part of critical consciousness, again, acknowledges that, sure, it's good to be critical of systems. It's important to not blame individuals for their circumstances, but you also need to feel like you can actually do something about those oppressions that you're aware of to actually result in some sort of change. Your ability to feel efficacious is really important because if you feel helpless, you're probably not going to be able to, or it's going to be harder for you to actually to show up in ways that challenge oppression. So that efficacy is another component of critical consciousness. And then finally, the other component we call more of like critical action or activism or more of like those behaviors that young people actually engage in to challenge oppression. So, you know, when you hear critical consciousness, and it, sometimes you may think, oh, it's the analysis of the structural oppression part. It's the analysis because, you know, consciousness, it's like thoughts. But it's really this process that young people go through to challenge oppression. It acknowledges that their understanding of the world matters, their feelings about their agency to challenge social issues matter, and then the behaviors that they take matter. It's this multidimensional process that shapes whether and how they're going to challenge oppression in their lives. And I think some people usually put forward the critique that if you really think about what's wrong with the system and you really focus on critiquing the system, that it would make you disengage from society. But I think you also actually looked at that in your own research and What would you respond to these people? Would you say that's true? Or what does your own research say about that, maybe? Yeah, so there's quite a growing body of literature. And, you know, my research contributing to this, too, is that young people who actually are critical of systems of oppression, meaning that they recognize how laws or policies disadvantage marginalized communities like Black people, Latinx people, people of color, that when they are able to recognize aspects of the system that are unfair, that's actually contributes to positive youth development. That actually contributes to greater academic achievement, more civic engagement, more activism. And, you know, it's contrary, I think, to what some people might think. Some people might think that if you're critical of the system, maybe you're going to be pessimistic about the system, so you may disengage. But that's not what I find in my work. I will say a caveat 
to this, what is important in young people translating this analysis, this critique of the system into action is that, you know, I do want to recognize that, and this work is still developing, we haven't looked as much as how that structural analysis of oppression does relate to mental health outcomes. And so I will say there is a caveat there that even in my work and other work, finding that the ability to critique the system really does is associated with positive outcomes that if we had some more research that's longitudinal or research that looked at other outcomes that's like mental health related, like depression, we might be able to tease apart that, well, at the same time, yes, it's good for positive youth development outcomes like academic achievement, but it could be potentially also causing distress for maybe Black youth activists or queer youth of color who are constantly engaging in the critique of these systems and actually in the streets challenging oppression because this work is hard. Um, it's emotionally taxing, it's spiritually taxing. And so I will say, even though we do see these associations, that positive associations between analysis and action, that we do need some more work to tease apart longitudinally, what are the long-term effects of critiquing the system on people's well-being? I got a question on further effects on students' mental health. So what you just mentioned. And since then, I'm thinking about prevention for students' mental health when helping them to see the world's injustice, because you cannot go back, you know, you cannot unsee. So my question is, when we're becoming more critical conscious or we're helping youth to become more critical conscious, what should we bear in mind when it comes to their mental health? Or further, do you have any ideas on how we can prevent youth mental health? So my head initially went to the correlation between the two. So thinking about how, so there's theoretical work by like Dr. Lon Hope, Dr. Nkemka Aniwo, that looks at Black adolescents' personal experiences with discrimination and how that actually does relate to higher levels of critical consciousness. And so essentially meaning that, you know, when I personally experience injustice, that it's more likely that I'll also be able to see that, you know, there are other people in society who are also affected by injustice through policy. So there's something, again, about that personal experience with oppression that allows you to see beyond yourself and see that other people are also affected by oppression. So that's initially where my thought about your research findings went. But I guess we're not sure if those things are correlated, but that's what I know theoretically and empirically by their work. In terms of mental health and the supports that we can provide young people as they develop a critical consciousness, it's really focusing on... I think it's important to be honest with young people. You know, there's a lot of misinformation here in the United States around what can young people handle when it comes to talking about the real truth of our communities, right? So young people in the United States talking about genocide and the mass removal of indigenous communities by their land or the enslavement of Africans in the United States. And, you know, there's a lot of misinformation that, you know, this is too much for young people to handle. Young people can't talk about these things, which is not true. Young people have the ability to question and explore and understand the real life racial atrocities in their country because they're just learning facts. But at the same time, this learning about systems of oppression, it can be distressing, especially when you see yourself in those narratives, right? Or in those stories, if say if you're indigenous or say if you are African or African-American or the descendant of enslaved Africans, that's painful because you're looking at, you're, you're learning about your ancestors. And so we do need to also be mindful of how we're thinking about young people's emotional well-being in this. What social supports are we providing to remind them of the beauty of their communities? Your communities aren't just about oppression. Your communities are creative and strong. And also, you're also just regular people just living your lives. You know, your lives are not centered around your oppression. And so I think that dual narrative of talking about the reality of the racial atrocities of, you know, that happened in Germany, right? So much there, the Holocaust. And here in the United States, with land displacement and forced enslavement, recognizing those atrocities, but at the same time, recognizing the beauty of marginalized communities, that they're more than just their oppression. And also really focusing on that agency, because when talking about systems of oppression with young people, and I see this in my work with youth, at the beginning, it can actually feel distressing when you're talking about historical policies that are making it hard for you to attend equitable schools. You're like, oh my gosh, I feel like the cards are stacked against me or the odds are stacked against me. 
So it's really important to, at the same time, help guide young people to understand what are their spheres of influence in their lives that they can actually today disrupt oppression. Maybe it's talking to a family member about bias in their family or their values around social justice. Maybe it's talking to a friend. Maybe it's going on social media. Maybe it's writing poetry. I think constantly reminding young people that they have power and they can use it in ways that resonate with them so it doesn't feel so distressing. Yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned that also these different ways of engaging. And I was wondering, because in the paper, the authors also say, you know, it's such a political development is such an important task in adolescence. But um, then I was also wondering, what do you think? How may this critical action also be different among adolescents and maybe uh, compared to adults? Because I think what's in Flanagan, they also mention an important part is the opportunity structure, you know, and there are things maybe that are hard for adolescents to do, like voting or these types of critical actions. So what do you think, how would you say, may critical consciousness and critical action look different among adolescents potentially? Yeah, so there are definitely differences between youth and adults and then differences within different youth communities. And so I'll focus on the within youth communities. So right now I'm working on a paper trying to think through how critical consciousness might look different for different Latinx communities. So for example, I think a lot about third and later generation Latinx youth. So youth who have further connections away from their immigration history. So maybe for a third generation youth, like both of their parents are born in the United States, they're born in the United States, and even thinking further along from that, a 10th generation, so on and so forth, 15th generation Latinx youth. What might it look like for these youth to challenge systems of oppression? And how might that be different from a first generation immigrant Latinx youth? One way that I think about this is that you really need to think about what does challenging the system mean for them? And so for later generation youth, oftentimes it's learning Spanish, actually, you know, reconnecting with if one doesn't speak Spanish or if one is maybe less aware of their cultural history because they and their families have been in the United States for decades and through forced assimilation and not being able to retain Spanish in the home or in schools. We know there's tons of laws um, historically that have permitted and still continue today prohibit young people to speak Spanish in schools. So over time, that language is lost and it's seen as deficient. It's seen as deviant. And so for Latinx youth who are further generations um, or later generations who don't speak Spanish, actively learning about their culture, learning Spanish is a resistance against white supremacy. But that might not actually be the same way that first generation Latinx youth resists white supremacy because maybe they do speak Spanish and they have more conversations in their home about what it means to be Mexican or Puerto Rican because their ties to their family's immigration history is much closer because they're first generation. And so that's one way that I think about how critical action might look different. It really depends on your social position in the U.S. hierarchy, your connection to white supremacy, as shaped by the intersections of your identity, right? Your sexual orientation, your gender, your generation status, whether you speak English or not, it's really going to shape how you view challenging the system. I think that's a very interesting thought, actually, and also something that I'm thinking a lot about in Germany also, you know, how that may look like in different communities. So I think that gives me a lot of food for thought. One other question I had was, uh, you already mentioned that sometimes uh, schools, by demanding assimilation, can also really contribute to inequity. But in your research, you also look at how schools may also foster critical consciousness, actually. And you had a study where you looked at different types of school climate. So can you tell us a bit about what can schools do or what did you find in your research? What works in promoting critical consciousness in schools? So in the study that you're referring to, we looked at how the messages that schools give young people around race. So do they give critical consciousness messages to youth, meaning that are they having discussions with youth about the history of racism in the United States? Are they talking about white supremacy? Are they engaging in these conversations about race in the classroom? And at the same time, are youth perceiving that their schools are doing the opposite? Are young people seeing that their schools are trying to avoid talking about race? Are they trying to minimize the importance of race and understanding how the school functions or how society functions? So in that study, we wanted to see what might youth who perceive these different messages, how do those messages relate to different critical consciousness outcomes? Is it that, you know, the more that young 
people talk about race in school? Does it relate to engaging and challenging racism? You know, what are the associations? What we found was that first, young people actually perceived talking about different messages about race in school. They actually got mixed messages about racism in school, which is pretty consistent with what the literature finds in the fields of education, sociology, and psychology, that young people perceive colorblind messages and at the same critical consciousness messages. So they were told to think about race and at the same time to not think about race. Very confusing. But even still, even though they got these mixed messages about race, those messages related to different critical consciousness outcomes. And so youth who were encouraged to think about race, they were more likely to engage in anti-racism action that challenged racism in their communities. But youth who were told to not think about race or who perceived those colorblind messages, that didn't relate to how they challenged anti-racism action. So there was no association. So again, even though they perceived these mixed messages, it was really only the messages that encouraged them to think about race that related to them actually challenging it. So what that tells us is that, you know, for teachers, and I think about your students, right, and the pre-service teachers you work with, really leaning in to these conversations about oppression in your classrooms. They matter for young people's actual engagement in challenging racism. And it's tough, right? Because teachers, I mean, at least in the United States, you both can tell me what's the norm in Germany around talking about race, but our teachers are not trained to, to, okay. I think in Germany, even less, actually. I think what we often find in Germany is that historical racism is being taught about a lot. So we learn a lot about the Holocaust at school and about the history that Germany had with racism. But we don't talk about contemporary racism and we don't have a language. So the term race or the category of race is not really being used anymore. So people sometimes don't even know how to talk about these topics because you don't have words to really talk about these groups. And yeah. It's like a silent agreement that with the end of the Second World War, racism doesn't exist. So let's not talk about it at all. And I think in your paper, we can add that to the show notes, then you also address the struggle of addressing the relevance of race in the classroom and that teachers express difficulties discussing issues related to race and racism. So what could be done then to support teachers in having these difficult discussions? Yeah, I really put it on programs in the Department of Education and the government really supporting the development of curriculum in training teachers to have these conversations. And so I definitely know that there are teachers who care about talking about race, but they may not feel equipped to because maybe their programs are not talking about it. Maybe they feel overwhelmed. So for example, like in the United States, the majority of the teacher workforce is white women. And so like oftentimes, research will find that like white women definitely want to have these conversations about race, but they may not know how or they feel fragility around being white. But then they also are trying to wrestle with being a woman. And so The personal interest might be there within some teachers, but they need more structure supported by their programs, supported by the government here, which, of course, shapes the content that is taught in our higher education systems to talk about race in the classroom and what schools teach is so political, right? So in the United States, the books that we have, like our history books are mainly made in Texas. And so there's uh, lots of misinformation that comes from the development of these books. Mainly white men write these textbooks. So you can imagine that the content is misguided in many ways, and there's whole chunks of history that's missing. And so if that's what teachers are using to learn about and to teach their students about race in the United States, it's not enough. It's not complete and or it's just wrong. And so we need more support from the government, from publishers, from faculty members, from everyone in the ladder of education to contribute to supporting teachers to have more honest, real, and caring conversations with young people about the reality of race and racism in the United States. I mean, and at the same time, teachers also need focusing on their own racial identity development. So again, it's not just learning the content of racism, it's You know, when you're learning about systems of oppression that maybe you benefit from or maybe you're disadvantaged from, like we talked about with mental health, you're going to feel some stuff. You're going to maybe feel anger. You're going to maybe feel depression. You're going to maybe feel, gosh, the emotions can really range. And so with racial identity development, 
that really is focusing on what's your role in this and how does your perception of how you see yourself as maybe a white woman, a white person, as a Latina, as a black person, as a black teacher, for example, how might that shape how you talk about these issues with your students and your ability to? And so I also want to emphasize that point, the own teacher's own racial identity development and emotional development around these issues is really critical to how they're going to be able to to teach their students about race. That brings us to our next section, the future. And in this section, we really want to know what do you think or what changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding research on your topic? So like I mentioned earlier, with some of the theoretical work that I'm doing around what does challenging racism or engaging in anti-racism action look like among Latinx youth, I really want to see critical consciousness work focusing on nuances within group experiences. So rather than comparing Black youth with Latinx youth or Asian youth, which, you know, there are research questions that do allow for that. But I really want to look at and see the field to be more critical about what these diverse experiences look like within communities and how intersectional social identities and how they're shaped by systems of oppression shape how young people view about oppression. So for example, I'm not doing work around white youth racial identity development and critical consciousness development, but I do have colleagues who are looking at that and looking at how like low-income white youth might develop critical consciousness. So they have, for example, really They have insights into what classism might look like because they're marginalized for being low income, but still being advantaged by their whiteness. And so I want to see more nuance into these diverse experiences around social identity and how that relates to how young people show up for challenging oppression in their lives, whether or not they're oppressed by it or privileged by it. Um, so some more nuance there. Yeah, you mentioned intersectionality. I think that's a huge topic. And we're like also in our team, we're thinking about how can we do research through the perspective of intersectionality? And do you see like any, like, I think the chances are quite clear. So why intersectionality matters, but it can also be challenging, right? To always have the intersectional perspective when doing research. Would you share any thoughts on that? <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. It does also relate back to where I would like to see the field go to and, you know, thinking about future work and critical consciousness research. I think in thinking about intersectionality and the experiences young people have in developing critical consciousness, I go back to the youth participatory action research. I think that's really a way that we can do more work around how young people's intersectional social experiences shape their critical consciousness. And so I think sometimes when we do quantitative work, for example, it can be really tough, right? Because we're looking at items and the item may say something about race, right? Like, I feel happy about my racial group. But if you want to understand maybe like a Latina woman's pride around being a Latina woman, it might be a struggle to make that item really succinct and clear to say like, I feel happy being a woman and a Latinx person. So you don't know when a young person's responding to that, are they saying, I feel happy being a woman or do I feel happy being Latinx? That's just an example of how it could be hard sometimes in quantitative research to try to make sure that your question is short and succinct and accessible to participants and youth. But I think one way around that is ask them, ask youth through a youth participatory action research lens, how do you navigate the world as a queer Asian person and let young people show you through pictures, through poetry, let them come up with the questions. I think we as researchers, you know, we're adults with PhDs oftentimes, like we are really good, again, at knowing these methods that we've used in our work. And, you know, we know the main articles in our field, but oftentimes young people don't have access to that, right? Majority of the times young people don't have access to that, which I think is so exciting for the collaboration between researchers and youth because young people can come up with creative ideas to ask these questions around intersectionality and their experiences. They can say, well, don't ask it like that. Just don't ask it at all. You know, again, let us draw it or let us act it out or let us show you as opposed to tell you. And so I think that is how I'm approaching intersectionality in my work right now. Again, with like I mentioned with the Latinx youth in Pittsburgh around 
what does it mean to be Latinx? But all the youth in that room, they don't share other axes of identity. Some of them are undocumented. Others are citizens and fourth generation. There's so much diversity. And we're going to see diversity with those experiences as they start to do their photo voice projects, taking pictures of their lives as they start to do their action research projects. And so we will see what that looks like. But that is what I think how we can do more intersectional work, letting youth lead. Okay, I think you already uh, mentioned it a little bit, but I was wondering also for researchers who've never really engaged so much in participatory methods, what are maybe baby steps you can take or small things you can do to make your research more participatory? Oh, I'm writing a paper on this now. Really? <laughs> yes, it's on my desktop right there. Yeah, you know, it could feel like a lot, especially again, if you were trained in a program that didn't do participatory action research. And so I would say connect with people who are doing the work. Don't reinvent the wheel. I think, you know, us as academics and people who have higher education or people who really love knowledge, you're like, oh, I want to create this thing. But I would actually encourage, you know, folks who are interested in YPAR and other community-based perspectives to actually take a step back. Reach out to people who are already doing the work. That could be youth. That could be community organizers. That could be other academics. And just show up and listen. Just listen and see what work is going on already in terms of what questions they're understanding, what issues do the youth and other communities care about. And I would take it from there, develop relationships with them and don't start suggesting things to do, questions and projects. I would take it slow. So really getting to know people and what their values are and seeing if a true, genuine collaboration develops from there. Because again, that's very antithetical from traditional mainstream research processes, right? Usually it's we have a question and then we find a sample or we recruit a sample to test that question. This perspective is really much slower and it may lead to nothing or it may lead to a deep, meaningful, socially impactful program of research that actually benefits the lives of youth and their communities. So again, back to community, plug into a community that's already doing the work. Thank you for sharing all that with us in today's uh, conversation. We've got one final question left, which is, how do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? So like I mentioned before, I just reflect on my mission in life. And it's for the liberation of youth of color and families, black and brown youth. I want my people to be free. I want marginalized communities to live life of freedom, of healing, of joy. And, you know, while I'm doing this work, I mentioned I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about my community, where I'm from. This is not just abstract questions that I'm thinking about. It has real life implications for people that I love. And so that's what motivates me. It's love. Love for my people, love for Latinx communities um, and other communities of color. Well, I think we've reached the end of the episode. So thank you so much, Josie, for joining us today. I took so many notes and things I want to take away also from my own research and kind of perspective on research. So I think it's wonderful. Thank you so much for helping us increase visibility of outstanding social scientists like yourself and of cutting edge research in the field. Thank you all for listening and talk soon. We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koeman for logo design, and Zeynep Alpay for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon.